Hello, this is Kristen McDonald, and welcome to Second Vision. Erin McCormick is an author, entrepreneur, inspirational speaker, and artist whose path to success and fulfillment defies societal norms and expectations in nearly every single way. Raised by a single mom in the south side of Chicago, since the age of 23, McCormick was one of the world's leading technology business transformational sales executives, earning millions and receiving numerous awards and distinctions, including Best of IBM, an award bestowed upon the top 1% of 400,000 employees. McCormick has founded several companies and earned an MBA in business despite having no prior undergraduate college degree. McCormick courageously stood up and escaped the fundamentalist cult in which he was raised, which resulted in a loss of numerous friends and family. Aaron has helped countless people of all backgrounds realize greater fulfillment and success in their career, personal power, love, relationships, sales, entrepreneurship, and leadership. Today, he is here to give us insights from his new book, Unbounded, Journey to Your Within. So nice to have you, Aaron. Hi, Kristen. Thank you for having me. Well, your story is just really incredible. Excuse me. As I said before we started the show, I'm into your book, and I'm on about Chapter 4, and I I just can't wait to go through the whole thing. You talk about so many of my favorite topics, joy, empathy, purpose. So let's break it down. What prompted you to write the book? Tell us a little bit about your backstory. It's so amazing that you were, you know, raised by a single mom and, um, you know, got got an MBA without an undergraduate degree. What prompted you to write this book, Unbounded? Well, you know, I we alluded to this before when, we, when you and I were talking um, about empathy. I'm an empath. I didn't know that term when I was much younger in life. But looking back and understanding, uh, you know, later in life what that means, it's no question that I am such or I feel the um, the emotional disposition of others. I understand energy on a different level, which is, that, I guess that's kind of also how I was very successful in sales and business at such a young age, selling to people that had children my age, senior executives, you know, the CEOs of companies and that sort of thing. Um, but doing that for a while, I guess it's been, it's been almost 20, about 20 years actually, um, I guess I was applying a part of me as all of us are doing. We're all, you know, there's pieces of us, we're fragmented, and the question is, which is the greater part of us? And that's what this evolution into writing and helping and speaking came from, where I was, you know, and, and in fact, I'll also say this. When we look at people that are very, that are uh, inspirational, highly successful, so to speak, uh, you know, they're fulfilled, they have an energetic disposition that is, you know, empowering, all these things, all these ones that we've admired throughout history, we tend to think that they're better than us in some way, or we assume that because they have some accolade that in our mind tells us that they have more money, they have more fame, they've done certain things. In reality, the only difference between them and us is their connection to their heart and how strong, how strongly they are heart-centered versus being completely mind-driven based upon the things that they have learned to be idealistic or the expected outcome or goal for themselves, so they, they follow their true self. And when you do that, everything else tends to 
become a lot more, have a lot stronger gravitas. You become better at the, in all these different ways. So that's a long-winded way of saying I was using parts of me, as we all do to varying degrees in whatever we're doing. I was leveraging traits and gifts of mine, but the center, the hinge pin of it all was my interest in helping. And that's actually why I have a chapter in the book that says empathy can make you millions because I attribute my financial success to my empathy and intuition and desire to actually help the person across from me, help the people that I'm interacting with in a business context. But what will happen throughout my life, Kristen, is friends, uh, even sometimes clients, professional uh, situations, people would often bring up issues in their lives or concerns, crossroads, intersections, topics. And I, I've always kind of known we have our own answers if we are actually really transparent with ourselves and, and we don't sort of, you know, take the, the safe, what we think is the safe route, and I'll talk more on what I mean by that. And so I would ask these very introspective questions. I wouldn't tell them what I think they should do. I just ask these very incisive questions that were pretty simple and obvious, but not to the person that's doing the running. To the person that doesn't want to face it wasn't that obvious. And they would get these epiphanies all the time, and, and they would help themselves, and they would change their relationship status that was unfulfilling, or they would switch careers, or they would do all these different topics. And I said, you know, it feels really great to see people in power and to see people no longer being bullied by themselves. And I just thought, there has to be a way for me to mechanize this a little bit better so that more people can find themselves through themselves rather than onesie, twosie, you know, the 50 or 100 people that I've personally interacted with, and that was really the purpose of the book, to try to help as many people look in their own mirror as possible. That's beautiful. Now, were you always empathetic? I mean, you, you got into this career and started making a, a lot of money. First, tell us how that happened. I mean, I'm really curious how you did that. You, you, you didn't have a college degree, right? Your dad left when you were very small. I, I think you mentioned that in, in, your, um, in, in your book or uh, also your biography. Yeah. Suffered yes, from a I, mental illness, you never met him? No, I knew him. I, I met him, but they divorced when I was three or four years old. Right. So I, I meant when I you were older. No, That's what I meant. Yes, I saw no evidence of uh, of any mental illness, of course, as a three or four-year-old. And then in the few times that I've met him since being a teen and adult and all that, um, it, you know, those symptoms never showed themselves to me. But that was apparently, that was supposedly at least the situation back, back when I was a child. But, you know, like without feeling any thunder from later chapters where I talk about interesting synchronicities that are always serving us, things that we think are bad, anxieties and things that we, in the moment, are, are problematic and obviously very tense moments for us are actually forging and serving us in very tangible ways. I'll talk about that in the book. But um, I even talk about some of the early people and how I ended up getting really high-level jobs at a very young age. But I'll just say this, Kristen, when I was in high school, and well, actually, since I was a child, I loved cars. And then in high school, I decided I wanted to be a mechanic because I knew all the stats and specs on cars since I was probably four or five years old. And I'm thinking, hey, that's what my strong interest is. I work on cars. I did that uh, for like maybe a, a year uh, off and on with my uncle uh, on my very first car, which was obviously not a nice car, and I was always fixing on it. Uh -huh. and, and I realized that was not for me. So then I decided, and I was probably, you know, freshman, sophomore in high school. Then I decided, okay, maybe I, let me go into computer programming because at the time, 
in the mid-90s, computers were obviously, in, you know, emerging, continuously growing in proliferation. And I'm like, okay, that's where the money will be. That's where the trends are heading, so let me do that. So I took COBOL programming, which obviously dates me, but, hey, you know it's the 90s. <laughs> I took programming. You're right, and, right. You know, same thing there. I, I was – I'm very analytical, so I'm – I'm very much left and right brain. I'm actually ambidextrous in very odd ways. But the point is I'm doing this programming and I'm like, while I'm creating something from nothing, it's also, it's too non-interpersonal. Like I, I knew, I, I figured out then I've got to be doing something with things that are even more complex to computers, which are human. I'm like, I either need to be selling, teaching, training, something like this. Communication, connecting with people. Something to that effect, right? But mm-hmm. then I also was in an awkward situation because, as you said in my bio, I was raised in a very high-controlled Christian religion that yeah. was so fundamentalist that there was no real prospect for college. That was very much frowned upon. And, and the basis there is if you're strongly fundamentalist, that you take Christianity, you take Christ to a T as a follower of Christ and as a perfect human, so to speak, as the story goes, he could have availed himself to being the world's best everything, the best attorney, the best king, the best, and yet he was a lowly carpenter. So the point is, in this very fundamentalist religion, we were not to avail ourselves to secular greatness or, you know, any sort of high level of aspiration. So that was never really in my psyche. So I'm thinking, uh, I can't be an attorney, although everyone said I would have been a great attorney. Can't be a psychologist. All these things take degrees. Can't really be a formal teacher, but I can get into training, and I can do some sort of sales. Then I also realized sales was the highest paid profession in the world because CEOs are even salespeople. Everyone is actually selling all the time. And so I go, okay, what if I marry technology, the programming, you know, this where, where the world is going with what I know makes everything go around, all trade, all partnerships, all, all companies are led effectively by people who understand other people and who, you know, coalesce and actually, you know, orchestrate things to create outcomes. So I go, maybe I'll go into sales. So it was a very macro decision based upon all those things. And then it it started with low-level sales and quickly and interestingly became tech sales that I was very unqualified for, but someone took an interest because, and I talk about this in the book, that it was all energy because psychologically – Mentally, there was no reason for this person to hire this 19-year-old kid with no real experience in the levels of technology that this computer consultant company, consultancy in Chicago, that Incredible. It was way over my head. But come to find out later on, and looking back, that president that hired me, he created an inside sales position for me. He was an impact. And so energetically, he couldn't escape, so to speak, his own mirror or the strong vibrational pull, he felt something, knew something, and he, he made a illogical choice that hugely paid off paid off for him in my performance and my, my growth. And that happened in two or three other positions down the line. And the point I make there as you get to those parts of the book is that there's a lot of things that you know subconsciously is running the show. Energy is always actually running the show because we are all energy. Yeah, and we are all felt before we are actually expressed verbally. We all know about nonverbal communication and such. And so, part of part of the challenge of this journey is learning how to both be captains 
of our destiny, but also kind of surrendered to it in various ways where you allow the subconscious, which is, you know, you allow the subconscious to become more conscious to you so you understand what is the unspoken thing that's always been animating you. So you actually are getting in touch with the subconscious consciously and you go into a bit of a flow where you're no longer, you know, suppressed by all these external things that have conspired to shape you and change you and make you uh, go down paths that you otherwise wouldn't if you were congruent with your true essence. Well, isn't that, you said in the book, 90% of our thoughts are come from our unconscious? That's exactly right. That's been scientifically proven. That 90% of our brain activity is unconscious, which really means 90% of what we do, what makes us tick, we don't know why we're doing it. We don't consciously know why we're doing it. Yeah, and that's really the need to, you know, journey to your within, so to speak, to understand what has been you since you were physically here, since you were Mm -hmm. born and a toddler. What were the things that were organically you before you were molded into all of your understandings and beliefs and biases and fears, which were absorbed by you by and, and the stimulus? The, the essences or the, the energies coming at you came from your parents, your siblings, your neighborhood, your country, your TV, your media, your your group sex, your group nationality, your race, all these different ideals, expectations of ways of being. Since we are very social creatures, I mean, we naturally want to assimilate. There's a strong part of us that wants to to be in line and not be in conflict with all these other things around us. Yeah, the have external we have forces that derail Absolutely. us sometimes. Yeah, yeah, we so, want to so, in line with us. Yeah. Exactly. So, when did you get the the MBA? Did you go to school as you're working at IBM? And and how did you even get accepted without an undergraduate degree? I did. So it was um, it was in 2015 that I enrolled. No, 13. I I got the MBA in 15, and I, it was during my time at IBM, although it was self funded. So. Um, what I learned, and a lot of people don't know this, but a lot of the top schools, you know, their executive MBA programs don't require a undergrad because an executive MBA program means you're already an executive. So you're already in some level of influence. You're very much down the line in, in a mature career. You have letters of recommendations that will come in. You have a certain income clip. I mean, at that time, I was making half a million dollars a year plus, and, and I, I had years, you know, 15, 20 years, 15 or 18 years of experience in my craft. Um, so I qualify. And so it's very rare. It's not completely unique to me. A lot of people mm-hmm. don't know that that's possible, but certainly if you, if you already built a career for yourself, if you really think about it, it kind of makes sense. Universities are ultimately businesses as well, and they have a brand to protect. So they don't want to take the risk of taking somebody, trying to take someone from zero to hero, so to speak, and the, and the person is an absolute flunky. So, you know, and, and so you've given them an MBA, but they've got it, – it, it doesn't help their brand. But if you are, well, you would know, absolutely proven yourself with the success, you know. And, and what was it like to have that kind of success at age 23, 24? I've seen that with certain friends in entertainment or uh, sports, and it, it really does change your life. I mean, you, you stayed so centered and spiritual and have come out such a good person. How did you do that? Suddenly you had a Ferrari. And, by the way, you have to tell the gender reveal story. I'm sorry, but I read about that, but that's just so 
I love it. You'll have you'll have to mention that. Oh, that means you were skipping ahead in the book. <laughs> I think, well, right? I have a reader, you know, and it, it just um, I try to go back to the same spot, but it's because of my eyesight. Um, I'm reading it through the PDF, you know. Gotcha. Oh, the PDF. Okay. Um, well, the success of a young age. I mean, that um, there was interesting epiphanies in the very earlier ages of or stages of my success, like before it got really you know, high income. I guess when I first made maybe 80 grand or something like this, and I was 19 and a half or something, and I bought my first house, and I had a, a, 300Z, a used 300ZX Nissan. It was a, like a halo car for me. And I had a Lexus GS300. That's like a $30,000 car. It's kind of a lot of money. And I had a Honda Accord as like my daily car. So I got three cars. I got a single-family home. I'm making 80 to 100K. And I realized in those moments, like six months after buying my first house, and this is the south side of Chicago, south suburb, where it's already the American dream to own a house, even more so when you're black on the south side of Chicago. There's a history in this country. I think we all understand some of the challenges that, you know, that, that come with this, especially without education all that sort of stuff. So I'm technically living the dream, and I remember six months in to my first house and the cars and all that. I got a little basketball court in the backyard. I got some grass. My dog runs around. And I remember thinking, this house is now just my house. It's not this, you know, the novelty wore off. It doesn't mean I didn't appreciate it. I'm a very appreciative person. That's part of the thing that gives me joy. But I, I just stepped out of myself, and I realized that the luster is hugely diminished just six months in because getting it is this wow factor. It's kind of like meeting your hero, meeting a celebrity. Eventually, you realize they're just a human. It's like things lose the luster. So I remember knowing that this will be the exact same result if that house wasn't just a 2,000-square-foot, four-bedroom bubble. If, you know, if there were 14,000 on the edge of a cliff overlooking the Pacific, it would also have gotten no. If my little Z was Ferrari and my Accord and Lexus were Rolls Royces, they would have gotten no. So I remember just having this epiphany sort of moment of it's all the same thing at different stages, and, and it doesn't really do anything for you. So, so in terms of define you, it doesn't define what's inside your chest. Mm-hmm. Those things, those things get old. So, um, that is what kind of frames the rest of the experiences. So, as the toys got bigger and the houses got bigger, it's now it's a million dollar house. Now it's the Lamborghini. I, I can remember after getting the the Lamborghini, which you know that that was a battle inside of me because um, fiscally it's a depreciating asset. And I didn't want to spend that much on something that's depreciating. But at the same time, emotionally, I've always loved cars. I loved them at all levels, all price points, all types. This was not a snobbery ego sort of acquisition. It was a, there was a lot of deep appreciation for the engineering of these cars. And when I, when I bought it, I remember thinking, man, you know, this, this doesn't actually feel any better than when I got my Dream Z or when I got that Super at 17. Because at a different proportional level, these things are more, you know, important to you. And now here I am, you know, 18 years later, and the world is perceived very differently to me now. And so it was, it was not that big a deal when I got, I got, I got the Lamborghini in 15. I bought it new, and that's where the gender reveal happened and stuff. But um, so yeah, I, I don't know. It's a lesson that most people never learn. That is entirely true because I would be dumbfounded 
They keep striving for more and more and more and more and more. And now look at us. The whole world has, you know, hit pause, you know, with the COVID, you know. Yes. And, and everyone's that, so grateful for everything. We had it made, you know. Well, that that's exactly how this darkness, so to speak, is serving us. And it's actually collectively helping the world in ways that we don't quite perceive. Yes. We think it's only bad, but it's actually helping. If we have time, we'll go into those, too. Yeah. Yeah, it's a shift. It's a it's a reset button. Yeah. Um, so so tell us about this religion, the fundamentalist religion, and you broke away from it. I mean, parts of your family don't speak to you anymore. Is that true? Yeah, I mean, almost all of them. I mean, unless you are completely out of it, which nobody is uh, for the most part. I mean, all my siblings are in my mother. So my mother has not met my four-and-a-half-year-old and two-year-old, and I got one on the way. She is. She doesn't know these kids, so and and she thinks he's doing me a favor. She thinks it's it's um, love on her part, and and again, this is her truth. So one of the things that I'm also aware of is there's a huge amount of real love actually allows and wants other people to live on their terms and to be centered and congruent inside. So whatever makes someone else centered. It's not loving or considerate of me to expect that they get off-center just to please me. So if her strong belief system is that she would be killing herself, so to speak, because she would incur God's anger for talking to someone that is no longer in the same faith, and all this stuff is, is in the Bible, by the way. It just depends on how absolutely you want to apply it. But if that's her belief, then it'd be pretty selfish of me be thinking about but I need my mom or I want my kids to know their grandma so I want her to have trouble sleeping at night and looking at herself in the mirror as she you know uh, has camaraderie with us if she deeply believes that that incurs her creator's wrath and that that's going to kill her and it will keep me out longer because the belief is hey I mean when if the Bible says that if, you know, someone that quote disowns the faith is worse than someone in and when the Bible, all of our Bibles, says don't even exchange a word with that person, I mean, there's a lot of very hard terms in the Bible. And, again, fundamentalist means you take it quite literally. So in that context, I have no ill feelings. I love them all. I, I wish them to be happy on their terms. And if they wake up, as I did, where you have a complete paradigm shift and, and something inside of you is, is feels completely different and you're able to honor that, if that happens to them and we get to be in each other's lives again, great. If it doesn't happen, then I wish them wholeness and happiness in whatever state they're in. That's so big of you. I mean, it really says it speaks volumes about your character. What was your belief system to make you so strong? What what kind of faith did you have? Was it in God, your own God, or was it just in yourself or the world? How did you do that to no. break away? And, you know, I can't imagine not speaking to my family and, and doing the kind of things that you've done so successful. Well, I mean, the the anchor, I guess the real basis for even waking up, so to speak, and feeling differently, consciously at least, was empathy. I mean, being raised in a religion that uh, teaches, and a lot of Christianity teaches this too, but, but most is not as extreme, hence the term fundamentalist and cult. Not every Christianity is not necessarily extreme or a cult, but if it, if it has a totalitarian form of governance where if you have a, an issue or disagree, 
you are you literally lose everything total, right? Totalitarian. Uh, then that is the definition of a cult. Is really what happens when you have an issue. So they want to own you. Most Christianity isn't that way. Um, well, what motivated me or what consciously started to awaken me is just acknowledging the empathy that had always been in me. And this is part of the theme of the book, even though it's not about religion at all, is what are these messages, what are these feelings and energy that has always been there, but we suppress and we don't give key to, and we wonder why we have this kind of you know, uneasiness, imbalance, but we wonder why our life is somehow off energy and experience from where we want it to be. So, like, what I mean by the empathy is I'm 12 years old, and I'm hearing these beliefs, and I was born into this religion, and I'm hearing these perspectives, supposed Bible application of it, and it is using the Bible and stuff, but this belief that the only way, the only uh, people that the creator of all people would favor and, quote, save in Armageddon, that's the whole belief system is doom and gloom and fear-based service, if you will, uh, are not only Christians, but this specific religion of Christianity, of which there is a very small amount of on the whole planet, on the world scene, and I'm going, I would always be thinking about, I'm, I'm, again, I'm 10, 11, 12, just when I began to reason for myself, I, I'm in conflict because I'm kind of going, so the innocent babies and people that are in Asian countries, Middle Eastern countries, you know, the bulk of the world is... You know, only 20% are Christian. The other 80 are made up of Hindu, India, Buddhist, Asia, Muslim, Middle East. That's the bulk of the, I mean, that's 80% of the rest of the planet by and large. And the other 20 in Europe and the Americas and all that are Christian. So I'd be saying to myself, so these innocent people that were born and raised in cultures that view Christianity about as, in a, as foreign a context as we view in America, we view Muslim or Buddhism, we're like, oh, what is that? That's odd. That's strange. And they couldn't care less about this concept of Christianity, and they're not deliberately bad people, and they're born believing these things, and 99.99% of them are in these ways of thinking, and there's nothing that's going to shift that. So I would be thinking, man, if, if Christianity is the only way, then there should either be an influx of people in all these other faiths crossing over not just because they moved to America, but in their own country, just are gravitating to the real truth, the only way to, to please God and to end up in God's kingdom, but there's never that influx. And it just, I always kind of knew, I'd be thinking to myself, what if we're wrong too? We're knocking on doors. We're trying to preach and evangelize. They're taught that they have absolute truth. We believe we do. It's a bit of a stalemate. And it's like, and who are you to consider someone else lesser because they're not in the same belief that you have. So I've always had that. Well, this happened, this will happen much later in life. I, my energy shifted and stepped more fully into that. And so now I'm very spiritual, very much believe in God, very much know we are all one and connected and are part of God. And there's all these evidences throughout our lives that prove that. But I'm not religious. I ascribe no more credence to Christianity or to do to Buddhism or Hinduism or all the above, other than they are frameworks that we all can choose and based upon regions of the world, they provide structure and they provide our chosen way of 
perceiving spirituality. And More like I, a unity church, kind of, you know, God is within all of us, and um, yeah. God is good, and it, 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 a universal spiritual belief, it, it sounds to me. Yes, I mean, I, uh, religion is, is uh, physical framework, physical processes mm-hmm. for, for a very spiritual thing. God, if mm-hmm. God is energy and we are energy, right. um, then, then the physical framework is fairly inconsequential. And, of course, we all know that the number one cause of all war has always been the human framework, the regional-based belief system that, that we equate to access to God, but they're also, uh, you know, very divisive. And, and I would like us all to be much more united. So, um, beautiful. Uh, I, I, you know, that's, that's where it comes from. Yeah, no, it's very beautiful. Uh, I'm, you know, we only have so much time this morning, and you're fascinating to talk to. So I, I'd like to get into a little bit of the book, you know, to tell people. You devote a couple of chapters to romance, which I haven't gotten to yet, but romance and relationships. Why was that so important to you in your book? And Well, as we think about the ways that we are inadvertently bound, in other words, we have these binders, these things that restrict our natural flow, um, relationships is a huge topic because, ironically, you know, of the things that we need, we all need food. We understand food. We understand what's healthy to us. We understand the things that are not healthy. We may not always obey. <laughs> we we mm-hmm. eat the bad stuff, but we get how nutrition works. The other big thing that we all need is love, in particular romantic love, a partner. And what's ironic is it's the least thing we understand and it's because we've been taught through very extrinsic ways about this topic. Extrinsic meaning from childhood we learned that the prince, handsome, blah, 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 that guy gets the beautiful princess. And the princess, because she's beautiful and petite and etc., she gets the prince. That's the oversimplification, but there's all these other things we learn about what we have to be and how we get this, and, and everything is projected externally, and we're chasing these things primarily for validation because it feels good to be loved, and we've, we've made it too much uh, of a – we've made the validation of the external party too much of our focus to the point where we're chasing away the very thing we're after because, again, if we're all energy and – Energy, like attracts like. That is energy. That's, you don't believe that? Go grab two magnets. And obviously, when they're of the same pole, they, they magnetize. When they're not, they're opposite, they repel. So like attracts like. So when we're all in this state of, I need external validation, we don't really know who we are. We're kind of lost. So we attract someone in a similar state, and all hell breaks loose. And we wonder why there's misalignment. Isn't that the and truth? <laughs> it's big time, half right? of America is divorced. Completely right. We're, we're, we've come up and we've become molded extrinsically instead of intrinsically. So imagine if you've got two options of how to be linked with somebody. Either in one scenario, you've just exited a relationship, you're really lonely, you need somebody, you want companionship, you don't know how to be happy by yourself because, after all, being in a couple is what validates us all, especially when we're over a certain age. 
So I'm dependent. So is that how I want the foundation, the energy, before I'm in a relationship? Is that what I want the energy to be? So now look at the pressure that's on the other side. That is, and that other entity, that other person is the star of their own movie. Every human is only living their own journey. They're only having their own experiences. They can share them with others, but it's, they, it's their own experience. And now I have become dependent on them to give me what I need and vice versa. What, so that's scenario one. Or scenario two is I've found myself. I understand why I have this bias or this fear and, and knowledge of power. Now I no longer have it. I realize the things that give me that fear that happened in the past, I realize how I can use those things to serve me. Or I realize, you know, how I want to be different and create different results. So I've grown. Now I'm happy either way, but I definitely prefer to have somebody. But I'm cool either way. If the other person you attract is of the same energy, imagine how much fewer arguments, issues, insecurity, jealousy, misunderstandings because of our own insecurity and how we're taking things. So much is more smooth, is much more smooth of a relationship. Self-love. Yes, right. So I'm like... Self-love and respect. You know, I'm just re- reading, uh, a friend of mine interviewed them, Marlo Thomas and uh, Phil Donahue's book on 42, I don't know, it's about 45 examples of different marriages and why they work. And one of the couples was saying last night, don't marry potential. You know, these are all couples that have been together uh, yes. 27 years, right. 40 years, you know, beautiful, beautiful uh-huh. stories. Definitely a, a, a worth read, you know. And it's and they they were talking about this very subject about self love. You know, when you're fulfilled yourself, you know, you can't really give the love to anyone else unless you know how to love yourself and respect, and you found yourself, you know. Yeah, and I want to touch on that for a moment because that that term is it's a powerful term, but it's used so much that it's completely lost its power. People think self love means I love my physical appearance. I love my sexual disposition or, you know, I love, you know, my racial heritage. I love all these, it's usually a physical descriptor, if you will. And, and that, that's the least part of it. That's like the simplest. That has nothing to do with how you're really going to be in a long-term relationship that obviously goes well beyond the physical when we choose to cohabit and join a life with somebody. That's a whole different thing than the physical aspect. So to the point of love, most people recognize you can't love what you don't know. You can have general love. Like, we all hopefully have general love for humanity. We would never want to harm a stranger for no reason other than unless it's self-defense or whatever. I mean, so that kind of love is one thing. But, I mean, to love usually means you know them. So, to your point, if you haven't come to understand the 90% of the subconscious that makes you you, because most of how you behave, most of how you get offended, most of what, you know, is an objective or goal of yours or expectation from somebody else was shaped unconsciously. So if you don't understand yourself at that kind of level, then it's hard to really love what you really are because you haven't even come in, in union with what you are. You're still right. on the... Your character. Yes, exactly. Character, values, you know... Um, if you'd really, like my brother and his wife, you know, they've had a wonderful marriage for many years, and they, they lie down on the tracks for each other, you know. I mean, it, it's that kind of a love, you know. 
Um, right. I, I have to move along because I'm bending the rules. We're going a little bit over, but I wanted to ask you two quick <laughs> okay, questions. So. One, no, I, I'm loving the conversation, and I know that our listeners will too. Um, just give our listeners just a, in a nutshell what unbounded means, you know, to be unbounded. Be unbounded. Well, so as we all strive for success, if you will, and I put in quotes, success, the importance of understanding that that term is only measured by you, the individual, a hundred thousand percent. And yet we don't realize that we are gauging that by external measures. We don't consciously say, I only care about what everybody else thinks, but ultimately our decisions, our career, how we pick them was usually data-driven, money or trends. We didn't really think about what I will actually physically enjoy doing day-to-day, what raises my vibe. That same paradigm plays out in relationships, in friendships, in, in biases of belief systems, there's a lot of things that we've consumed and absorbed that are not really our actual authentic essence. What I mean by that is the thing you were when you were an infant or a toddler before you learned everything of how to be who you are, how to live in this country, how to be a male or female, masculine, feminine, what's a good person, bad person, what success means, all these different things, your race, all these things that you've learned, some of which are incongruent, are, are some of which are congruent with your true self, but a lot of it actually isn't. So to become unbounded is where you no longer live with internal conflict. In great degrees and small degrees, you become aware and you accept the truth of your energy across topics, that is how you view yourself, your career, relationships, your belief systems, your biases. You, you figure out a way to ascertain what's foreign to me versus what's really me. So, and that makes you unbounded because all limitation is belief. That's why babies have no fear because they haven't been taught that something's scary yet. So as we get older, all of the barriers that we have are 100% in the mind. It's what you've learned to perceive to be a barrier. That's why a lot of immigrants come to this country and they end up having the dream that we are supposed to have that America is all about because they've been sold this legend. They deeply believe that, hey, in America, it's all great. got to be great. So it just becomes great for them. And they yeah. become the business owners. But then we here have been taught, oh, it's very hard. i got to go get a job. I have to go get a degree and then work for someone. Oh, I'm black. I'm limited. Oh, I'm a woman. Oh, I'm disabled. So we, we have these limitations, so that's what governs us. So unbounded is where you really get in touch with Unrestricted. And I love in the book you say that the worst person to be in conflict with is yourself. You know, that's a whole other conversation. But so the last question, tell us, please, a cute story, the summary of the um, the the gender reveal. (laughs) The gender, yeah. Okay, so gender reveal. uh, The wife wanted to get the men involved with baby shower for the birth of our daughter, our second child. And uh, she came up with this novel idea, apparently it was novel, it hadn't happened before, which is why it went viral, of getting this powder, very fine powder, in either blue or pink form or color, and her girlfriend would blow dry into the exhaust pipe of my Lamborghini. <laughs> we were in the backyard. <laughs> now, I was making dinner with my headset on last night when I read that part in the book, and I started laughing. 
Well, yeah, because the funny part of it is I also had a 68 Charger at the time, which is an old-school American car with long exhaust pipes that go from the back of the car all the way to the front. If, she, if we were to use that car, then when the friend blow-dried the powder in there, it would have blow-dried clear up in there, no problem. Because we use the Lamborghini, the, the the exhaust pipes are right at the, you know, where the engine is. So the engine is in the back of the car. So they immediately turn upward to the engine. So when she tried to blow-dry it, it blew back clear into her face. We didn't see this. We were, cause we were not supposed to know the color. and But apparently she had a huge mishap where it blew back in her face, blew ball over the floor. So she had to actually dump both colors on the concrete around the car so nobody would guess, oh, I see what color went in there, that kind of thing. So she, we have it all set up. We go out there, and uh, the wife's in front of the car. I'm in the car. I, I start it, and the Lamborghini farts out pink smoke. Basically, it blows out pink smoke, <laughs> and, uh, and we know we're having a girl. So that ended up, it went, you know, hundreds of millions, not hundreds, tens of millions of views, apparently, on social media. Then Bob Saget uh, came and picked it up. It ended up on, like, a one of those corny uh, Bob Saget late-night funny video shows, that kind of thing. So, oh, I love it. And you had a girl. Had a girl, and we have another girl in the oven, apparently. Oh, that's wonderful. My God, good for you. That's fantastic. Well, Aaron, so much to talk about. It's a beautiful book, and your your book stands apart from so many personal development uh, books, you know, that, uh, just with your story and your strength and your courage. So, so tell our readers where they can get it, and many of them, some of them are visually impaired. Uh, is it on Audible yet, or tell us where we can get your book. Absolutely. It is. If you go to my website, Unbounded Books, or Aaron McCormick, hopefully to the same website, you can. The link there will take you to Amazon, but it's also available on Amazon, obviously directly. It's available on Walmart, Barnes and Noble, most of the larger retailers. Not on Audible yet. That is coming. But you do have eBooks, right? You have eBooks, yeah. Well, that's perfect because there's there's a reader. So until it's on Audible, you should definitely narrate your own book. I'm sure it'd be terrific. That's what the wife always tells me, and I'm like, oh, can I have you or somebody else? <laughs> no, no, you'd be fantastic. You're a great speaker. I mean, we'll we'll have to have you back and talk about what you're doing now. You said you've switched your focus to do something spiritual, you know, for the greater good, you know, during these rough times. So I, I'd love to well, have you back. It's just definitely artistic. It's just talking about us, our own connectedness, finding our own truth, especially during things like election years where everyone's trying to tell us what we ought to believe. We all mm-hmm. have intuition. We all know truth, and we all know what each other is, what we are to each other, that kind of thing. So, But I'm still a business person. I still have a disruptive tech startup that is that covers the, I guess, the the, uh, the left brain, if you will. But then the, I'm, I'm much more um, people-focused as well. So I'm trying to cover the artistic side as well as the, the more technical analytical aspect of me. That's fantastic. You have so many gifts, and thank you for sharing them today with our listeners. I'm Kristen McDonald for Second Vision. My guest has been Aaron McCormick. And one more time, your website, Aaron? AaronMcCormick.com or UnboundedBook.com. Fantastic. Check out Aaron's book. And remember, anything is possible. With Aaron's story, triumph over adversity. So have a blessed day. I'm Kristen McDonald. Thanks for listening.